Hello and welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast. At the recent Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum, Innovation Forum's Toby Webb led a session looking at where landscape approaches are working now and what can be learned and improved upon. We join the session now, just as Toby is introducing the topic. If you're not involved uh, as a company in a landscape approach, perhaps this this session will help persuade you of the advantages of doing so. It seems like very much the best shot we've got at making change and in line in many ways with the COP process of taking climate change and putting it into chunks and tackling them one at a time. Well, landscapes is a pretty good way of doing that. We haven't found a better one yet. So I think what we're suggesting is we'll dive in and get involved. Um, and that this session should help you understand uh, where this is happening and why you can do that. So looking forward to hearing from all of our speakers. You can see who they are from their names. I'm going to let them say a few words about who they are when I turn to them individually. But let me start off with uh, with you, Dan. Dan Wensing, IDH CEO. Um, thanks for joining us and delighted that you're launching your Source Up initiative today, very much in line with the objectives of this session of the conference. So tell us a bit about what that means. And also give us a kind of an overview of you know where where we're headed on the landscapes approach and, and how you're seeing it accelerating um, but also let's be honest about the the challenges we need to overcome to get to scale so dan welcome and i'll turn over to you to start thank you toby and good morning good afternoon and good evening everyone it's a real pleasure to be with you today um and indeed uh, also for all the other reasons hoping that next time we can meet in uh, in real life um and yeah, I come from COP26 and you, you put the question there, right? Is the glass half full, half empty? To me, it's definitely half full, although I realize that for many it is half empty. Uh, but being, um, you know, an optimist by nature, I, uh, I look at it as half full and seeing a lot of progress happening. And I think also there for, for landscapes, right? Because nature was really at center stage at COP for the first time. And also the nexus between nature, agriculture, climate was much more on the agenda than it has been. And I think we will really build on it moving forward. Um, and if I, if I just reflect on, on where we stand with landscapes around the world, then, well, we're about a decade into testing it, right? And especially the last couple of years, it's been gaining momentum. Um, and, and why did we actually start on them? Well, if you look at the, the commodity and forest slash deforestation space, then we, at least at IDH, in the beginning, were very much all on, you know, certification and, and that will help solve it. But over the course of the years, we've learned that we needed additional approaches to, to supplement that. And one of those reasons was that in a lot of certification schemes, the government wasn't in. But if we really want to take this approach, we need governments in for land use planning, for enforcement, for all those kind of things. So we really needed a multi-stakeholder approach. And I think that's the beauty of the landscape approach, that you take a jurisdiction or a sub-national entity where you also put the government center, where you bring private sector, civil society, farmers, knowledge institutions all together to together define an agenda. And this is a bit of a slow process. Um, and it requires real uh, dedication and investment upfront before you really start seeing the results. But by doing that, you have that common language, that common understanding, multi-sector, multi-stakeholder moving forward. And I think that's really at the base of, of the success of the, of the landscape, uh, landscape approach. Um, and now moving forward, uh, because many of these initiatives are happening around the world. Many organizations are involved. Um, we need to get them to scale. 
we really need to show that it can be done. And going back to the COP26 agenda, right, there is also no time to keep piloting, to keep testing. No, we now really have to get what we've got to scale. And as we do that, learn and adjust and, and, and move forward. Um, and I think if you look at the landscape approach, then I see a couple of scalers. Um, one is uh, through partnership, um, because that is really key, uh, you know, that we, we, we share our lessons learned and our failures, and then others can run with those and learn from those and the other way around. I think the second one is on investment. Uh, we really need large-scale investment coming in. Carbon definitely holds the promise, but also impact investment funds that are out there like N Green or Agri3 or the FarmFit Fund and, and many others out there, they can now be really leveraged to build on what we've built over the last couple of years. I think a third scalar is, is on policy. Uh, so yesterday, there was quite a bit of talk and you referred to it now on, for example, the draft EU legislation. Um, and that's at the market end, but also very much at the landscape and policies will help to, uh, again, based on that role of government, to scale efforts and to bring in others that aren't necessarily part of the dialogue yet. And the fourth scaler to me is very much on trade. Um, you know, we really need to leverage the power of the supply chain. And that supply chain can end up in international markets, regional markets, or national markets. That doesn't really matter, but we really need to leverage that. And I think that um, is one of the things that we've been working on over the last couple of years. And Toby already mentioned it today. We are really introducing the Sourcer platform to the world, which is a platform that links landscapes to companies in markets so that they can work and communicate directly with one another, that they can together work on a shared agenda and move it forward so that we can really bring that procurement power to the transition of landscapes. But on the other hand, it's a two-way street so that also the landscapes can really, you know, ask the companies, okay, help here. You know, this is not an easy transition. We have to do this together. And I think that really is the beauty of it. And it brings them together, really that multi-actor coalition that I spoke to. It brings various agendas together, right? The, the social, the environmental, the economic agenda. Um, it defines clearly the roles and responsibilities of, for example, the buying companies. Um, and it's all based on transparency, on information, on progress, both at the landscape end and at the buyer end. Um, and I think that's the way to go. And through those four scalers, we can really get these landscapes and the landscapes movement going. So if I just look at the way of going forward from this, uh, the Consumer Goods Forum, right, at COP, and Chris spoke to that yesterday, came up with a more direct call to action on forest positive landscapes. And I think that is great, right? We really need to make that connect between the market and the landscapes to have the real incentives there to help governments and farmers with this transition, right? Only a stick won't work. We need carrots. We need long-term partnerships. Um, so I think those are some of the key elements that I wanted to share um, in moving forward. Um, and I'm excited about the future of the landscape approach. Um, at the same time, uh, there is an awful lot of work to be done. We still have to prove that this can work at scale. Back to you. Thanks, Dan. Um, so quick question before we move on. Um, it seems to me the landscapes approach is kind of a, what the academics might call a paradigm, a bit like regenerative agriculture. Um, but do you see a time as regenerative agriculture is heading to where we'll need some kind of common metrics to say, Right, there's all these landscape approaches and some of them are better than others, but the best performing ones are doing this. 
Um, is that possible or desirable to have that comparative analysis by, say, 2025? Uh, yeah, I think I think so. And and for example, in the Sorsa platform, we are building that so that you can, um, you know, there's now 20 plus landscapes already on the platform. Next year, that will grow to 40 plus and hopefully much more because it's, it's a collective platform, right? It's not IDH. It's, it's being built in a collective fashion with companies, with international organizations, with organizations from the landscapes so that we could really all design, okay, how do we do this and how do we measure it? And how can you indeed compare the performance of a landscape in Brazil to a landscape in Cote d'Ivoire or to Indonesia? Um, so we've defined, you know, at a verification level, how that can be done. Um, and I think it will give us the right uh, information to take decisions and to really help and support these landscapes. And when you talk to financiers, when you talk to people who want to put money into these things, what are the kind of questions they're asking you about how they can you know, justify or understand where their money is going on, on that basis? What, what are the conversations you're having on that at the moment? Well, I think... One of the elements is also that we still need to create a safe space to, to experiment. Because if we know that we haven't got all the solutions yet, um, and actually we need to entice, for example, investors, companies to work in the hotspots and not source away from the problem. No, we need to be in the areas where the problem actually is and where the need is highest. Now, that doesn't sometimes meet requirements that there is no deforestation in that area yet. Um, so we need the safe space to be able to work in those areas so that we help solve the issue and not turn our backs against it. So I think, I think that's a very important element um, to this question. Thank you. No doubt we'll come back to that in this session and throughout the day and tomorrow. Mariana, um, welcome uh, from Brazil to the conference. Um, Brazil alone, it must be difficult to keep up with everything that's going on. Um, setting aside, you know, Amazonian issues, there's a huge amount going on across the country. How do you even keep track of what you call a landscape approach? And what can you tell us about what you've learned about what the best ones are doing right? Uh, welcome. Toby, thank you so much. Good morning, good evening, everyone. I hope that my English was clear. I'm not a native English speaker. Uh, I really appreciate the invitation to speak with you today. And uh, I will focus my answer talking about the ABC plan. So the ABC plan is the agriculture sectoral plan for mitigation and adaptation to climate change. ABC plan will be starting in 2010. And in the first 10 years, uh, the ABC plans uh, give incentives for farmers to adopt six technologies. I will talk with uh, specifically about two technologies that will be the uh, recovery of degraded pastry. And then later I can share some documents and some uh, information where we are uh, working with the recovery of degraded pastry, that this must be the focus to increase the production by productivity. And very important in the ABC plan, crop, livestock, and forest integration systems. So on, on last August, we received here in Brazil, uh, Alok Sharma, the president of COP26, and we have the opportunity to show the integrated systems to him. And he, he, he records a video in his Twitter 
talking about how this Brazil should present this technology for the world and was one of the, uh, our activities in COP26 to present these kind of systems. So from 2010 to 2020, uh, the goal of the ABC plan was 35 million hectares. And the results, the targets that we achieved was 52 million hectares. So two times the area of United Kingdom. Uh, but the challenge is huge. And we, we have a, a lot of areas in Brazil where we can intensify the production in the same area, in areas that, we, that uh, they are already anthropocytes. So uh, we created the ABC plan, the ABC plus, that is the new phase of the ABC plan that is between 2020 to 2030. Uh, in the ABC plus, we have new technologies from the previous phase, for example, the bio inputs that is very important to decrease the emission in agriculture and livestock. This is only one example of a new technology. And we, we have a new goal, 72 new, new million hectares with uh, low carbon emission technologies in Brazil. Uh, all this process of ABC Plus, uh, we have a partnership with more than 400 scientists that uh, support the government to create the ABC Plus. And the uh, very important conceptual basis was the integrated and landscape approach. So very quickly, my, my last minutes, uh, what is the, the how we, we are work, working with the, uh, the integrated landscape approach? In Brazil, all properties must maintain a certain area to preserve native vegetation. vegetation. This is the forest code. Forest code is a federal law. So conventional production in this area, it's not permitted, it's not allowed. So at least in a private farm, at least 20% of the total area must to keep the native vegetation. Uh, this, for example, in Mata Atlântica biome, in Pampa biome, and for example, in Amazon biome, the percent can achieve 80%. So if you are a farm uh, and you have a farm with an area of, for example, 100 acres, 80 acres you must to keep with native vegetation. Uh, it's not permission conventional production in this area. So uh, the integrated landscape approach, it's very important to recognize, recognize the value of native landscapes to recover and conserve soil, it's very important to emphasize that it's in soil that we have the carbon sequestration to preserve water and biodiversity. So this is, this is the big strategic to Brazil to produce uh, food, bioenergy and fibers, for example. And we already have some examples here in Brazil, for example, the carbon neutral beef. Uh, carbon neutral beef is a science-based protocol where we feed ABC technologies, uh, as I mentioned before, and uh, the preserve of native vegetation with forest coats, all the emissions from cattle have been neutralized in the production system. So we can produce a beef that are neutral from uh, carbon neutral. So carbon mitigation, resilience to climate change, agriculture is the most vulnerable sector for climate change, Growth in production in area uh, already anthropocytes, 
uh, it's very important to Brazil. This is the public policy that we call ABC+. Thank you, Mariana. Um, we're all aware of um, challenges, shall we say, um, in the Cerrado and in the Amazon region. I don't want to necessarily get into those particularly here. Um, what I'm interested in is, what have you learned from the better performing regions of Brazil? Because it's an enormous country. You have a lot of high tech investment in agriculture. Um, where are the best performing regions that the rest of the country and elsewhere can learn from? Because I've heard some really good stories from other parts of Brazil where particular jurisdictional approaches have really started to move things on. Are there any other particular examples that you'd like to cite from elsewhere in Brazil? So, um, Brazil is a continental country. We have more than eight, 850 million hectares, so it's huge. And I think that all, all, we, we have good examples from on Brazil, from Pampa in the south, from Mata Atlântica, Pantanal, that is very important for biodiversity, Cerrado. But for sure, in Cerrado, we have a, a great history about increase production by productivity. So nowadays we produce four times more in the same area than some years ago, and we can produce uh, three, three crops in the same year. So for, for example, we plant soybean in October, we harvest soybean middle January, February, then we plant corn. In the same time that we plant corn, we plant pasture together. In May, when we harvest the corn, uh, the pressure is, is increasing, and then in our dry season, it's amazing. I think this is an amazing example of resilience for climate change. So between May and September, we have, that is our draw season. My backyard is totally broad. We have pressure, green pressure, uh, using the same area three times per year. This is one example from Cerrado. But if the ABC Plus, the focus is to look for each specific, for each biome. For example, we have our, or we have a Caatinga that is in semi-arido region, but we need to look for this region that is a region really poor in Brazil, really, really poor, where we, we must think in a sustainable development for the region. Thank you. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that. There's a, a question here, Mariana, maybe you can think about it. We'll come back to it a bit later. Question here in the chat about soy um, carbon sequestration and GMO soy versus sustainable landscape. So think about that. We'll come back to it. See if you have any comment on it a bit later. Uh, um, Mike, <laughs> Mike's Russ, let's turn to you. Tell us, uh, for those who aren't familiar with Lestari Capital, tell us where you are. I think Indonesia is your primary area of work at the moment. I'm very interested to know where you see uh, the, the, the best performing landscapes working at the moment. Um, Mike. Uh, thanks, Toby, and real pleasure to be here. Um, yes, maybe a little bit, I've, I've heard Lestari Capital and, and, and the work that we do actually mentioned a, a couple of times already at this conference. And so maybe a little bit of background uh, would be useful. Um, I'm a founder and executive director of, of Lestari Capital and also a lead on the, on the RIMBA Collective. Um, maybe just sort of tying back to some of the, some of the topics that I think you, we were discussing even before this, you know, as a background, I think, you know, Lestari Capital really kind of came into existence because, you know, the way that um, incentives for conservation, the way that the corporate sector currently interacts with conservation, where conservation is financed and the way that we look at delivery of conservation impacts on the ground. At the, at the moment, the current system is really not fit for purpose, uh, in my opinion. 
um, not at the scale that is required to deliver the pledges that are being made, the, the sustainability commitments, not only by, by individual companies, but also you know, by sectors and, and, and also by, by governments, really. And, and we, we saw that last month as well. You know, at the same time, there is a, a huge need um, for conservation. There is a huge demand from the corporate sector uh, for conservation to help fulfill all sorts of varieties of sustainability targets and sustainability commitments, you know, stretching from uh, things like science-based um, targets to um, you know, nature positive, to livelihood goals, biodiversity goals, achievement of no deforestation, um, as well as many, many others. And so you know, what we do is really we work collectively um, with, with corporate actors um, to conceptualize, design, develop, and then implement uh, mechanisms really to deliver on those commitments at scale, um, you know, integrating conservation into, into procurement uh, thinking, right? That's, that's a really fundamental part um, of, I think, of the puzzle. We really need to move away from grant-based support of conservation, philanthropic uh, ways of thinking about conservation and CSR-based conservation. We need to integrate this into, into companies' own operations. Now, of course, we need to do that equitably um, through uh, principles of shared responsibility. Of course, collectively, we will actually achieve something at scale. That's really um, important. We need to verify, demonstrate the impact um, on the ground as well. Um, and that needs to be linked to the claims that the, that the corporate actors are making against their sustainability commitments, right? We need to actually have those um, claims be verified on the ground independently. And the mechanisms that we develop, such as the Rimba Collective, um, is really designed to, to do that. And I think, you know, it, it just sort of coming back a little bit um, onto, this, uh, onto this concept of the demand for conservation, you know, really the, the scale actually um, of the demand is there. If you look at the broader sectors, not just agro-commodities, but the broader sector, looking at the fashion industry, for example, already thinking about nature positive, how do we achieve that? What is it, you know, and how do we, how do we get there? The scale is really quite enormous and that provides huge amounts um, of opportunities to create incentives, I think, for conservation, um, really at scale and to create different ways of thinking about effectively providing, you know, governments and local people with development strategies that are different from being extractive to, to actually being regenerative. Um, and I think, um, you know, lastly, I think there is a, you know, there is a question here, I think, um, and it's something that Dan, I think, touched upon as well a little bit. You know, we do need to think about um, areas which are uh, still forested. We need to think of a portfolio approach to doing this work, right? We need to be focusing, yes, we need to be focusing on restoration. We do need to be focusing on high-risk deforestation areas where the production and protection um, meets. We do need to be focusing on both of those, but we do also need to think about, and I think that's where the commitments also and the standards and the guidelines around those commitments really need to use that opportunity of this demand to start thinking about how do we also use this to protect areas which are still standing, which are still forested, you know, because... It wasn't so long ago when, for example, Kalimantan and Borneo was still an intact forest landscape, you know, and we need to be thinking that, that, that time ahead 
And, and really the opportunities I think are there to utilize this kind of corporate demand um, to, to really make impactful changes at scale. Thank you. A very simple question for you, Mike. When you say demand, demand for what exactly? So, so this is uh, this is maybe our own uh, kind of jargon. We we look at uh, we look at the demand uh, for conservation, effectively conservation conservation projects, and the conservation uh, demand can be for all sorts of reasons, right? They could be to help fulfill maybe forestation commitments. They could be to help fulfill uh, livelihood goals, biodiversity goals, uh, restoration goals, and so on. And so those outcomes that the projects are effectively delivering is the supply. That is, the, su the project supply is delivering those conservation outcomes, and those conservation outcomes are sought by, by the corporate uh, sector to fulfill overarching sustainability commitments. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting, that, you know, I keep talking about the demand and, and the fact that the demand is, is there what we're actually starting to find, and you know, the Rimba Collective is looking at now uh, 550,000 hectares uh, of, of area to be supported um, for the next 25 years. We're actually starting to see that there is a shortage of good project supply. And that, I think, is also a critical discussion that we need to have, is how do we make sure that there are good, robust projects on the ground to help actually fulfill those sustainability where are you on the conversation about carbon credits and, and company objectives for those versus other objectives? I just wondered how that those two fit together. I mean, it's, it's a huge issue being discussed relentlessly around and post-COP. Just wanted to bring that angle in to make sure we're clear about where you guys are on that in terms of benefits for companies and you know, nature, clearly. Yes, of, uh, of course. And, you know, there are, uh, as, as, as you know, in, you know, uh, across the globe, there are certain areas where there are still regulatory uncertainties um, with regards to carbon credits and exactly how they will be handled, how they will fit into the NDC uh, commitments of, um, of, the, of specific countries as well. Um, you know, we see that carbon credits do play a role um, in that transition. Uh, towards, you know, for example, fulfilling of uh, science-based targets. That is already partially in those, uh, in those guidelines there. Um, but we see them as, as one of the environmental service outcomes that is actually being demanded. And so I think when, we, you know, when we're talking about carbon credits, I also, you know, do need to stress and coming back to the intact forest landscapes issue, you know, we need to be thinking about it more holistically. We can't just be focusing on, on carbon we do need to be thinking about livelihoods and biodiversity and, of course, you know, the future um, of, you know, what our landscapes will look like, such as the insect forest landscapes. And so, you know, carbon credits do play a very important role, but I don't want to get away from the fact that actually we should be looking at a much broader um, kind of level of ecosystem service outcomes that need to be generated help us achieve the that's the concern i think we've seen voiced in some some areas about the rush to net zero and the focus on carbon do we risk unintended consequences by not being holistic um because we're focusing on on too narrow a goal i, I certainly know some very large conservation projects where i said you know what about carbon credits and they all just looked at me and went no 
<laughs> for, for a whole number of reasons, no. And that's that's not necessarily what you hear when you read the media and you read about conservation. They get all very excited, aren't they, about CO2. But then with a webinar we did last week with Nestle about it revealed just how fiendishly complex all of this is, even from a kind of methodological point of view, let alone on the ground. So, yeah, I see your point about going more holistic. What you're saying is companies need to set conservation restoration targets and be satisfied with outcomes from those without necessarily seeking payback from carbon credits, at least in the short term. Is that your position? It needs to, it needs to be looking at both. Yes, I, I, I really, you know, I, I, I believe that, um, you know, there will be projects that will generate carbon credits. There will be projects which probably would not generate verified carbon units. Um, but that doesn't mean that those projects are not as vital towards sustainable landscapes and towards achievement of corporate sustainability goals um, as the carbon credit producing projects. Yeah, we're going to have to force the markets not to obsess about a narrow metric for once. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> well, there's a great question here. Before I turn uh, to Megan, there was a question that I was going to ask you, which has been better phrased by Sophie. Thank you, Sophie. She says, have, Mike, have you developed a mechanism to attribute improvements at landscape scale to specific corporate investments it's a sort of linked point i suppose you know when when the board says why are we putting all this money into this strange place what are we getting out of it you know that that's the that's the very basic way of putting sophie's question what, what are your thoughts yes so the way that we work is um you know the, the the traditional method of of doing this kind of work was really that you would get a company and they would support one project you know company to, to project kind of kind of approach the way that we're doing it is we're developing a portfolio of projects those portfolios of projects they deliver different environmental service outcomes whether they are biodiversity livelihoods or climate benefits and so there is a wide variety of projects in that now what we don't want um and again coming back to my earlier point is we don't want people to be necessarily cherry picking right the individual outcomes you know just uh you know, livelihoods here and a little bit of climate benefits over here. We need to think about it more at the kind of scale of the project portfolio. And so what we do is we have um, um, projects within the portfolio that will all deliver these environmental service outcomes. They effectively are pooled and the, 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 the corporates that are part of the RIMBA collective are effectively making claims on the totality of the outcomes that are being generated in proportion to their contribution. And their contribution is in, in turn um, uh, determined by their scale of sourcing of palm oil in this, in this instance. So there is an equitable kind of, uh, distribution model. So we, we effectively attributed um, uh, by the scale of the contributions um, across the whole portfolio in proportion to the portfolio. Great. Okay. I imagine uh, Dan and Mariana might have some comments on that in a minute. We'll come back to it. Megan, let me turn to you. Um, now, you've, you've worked with USAID for many years in Southeast Asia, now working for Cargill. You've done a lot of work with Coco smallholders in Indonesia, uh, which is uh, a big challenge, along with many others in the supply chain. What have you learned from working with, with Coco smallholders, who, who are traditionally usually referred to as West Africa? That get, gets all the attention in Coco. In, in many cases, rightfully, because it's where most of the production is. But cocoa is significant in Indonesia, um, and, and land is just as complex as it is in Africa in terms of the issues. So what have you learned from working with cocoa smallholders that would help them get in and fit into the landscape approach? Megan. 
Sure. Thanks, Toby. And it's it's great to be here, everybody. Um, I think I should probably frame this that I have recently moved out of Cocoa World and I now cover palm oil. And so I am rather new to landscape initiatives, but it does give me a unique perspective because in Indonesia Cocoa, for various reasons, um, those those didn't exist yet. They, they might be moving that direction. So I, I do sit in a nice compare contrast phase here um, as we come into this, this conversation. Um, so I think I'll, I'll step back a bit though and, and first speak a little bit more at the broad level of, of where Cargill sits in these programs. You know, we, we do sit in a unique place in the supply chain, right? We sit between farmers and brands and the onus is on us to translate goals and put them into action on the ground. And so with that, we have the ability to solve multiple issues like mitigating climate change, protecting, regenerating and conserving resources as we at the same time improve livelihoods of farmers are aimed to do so. Um, and landscape approaches are so important to us because the challenges we face can't be solved alone, right? We've, we've established that here. And landscape approaches are a key part of our strategy in building a transparent, traceable, and sustainable palm oil supply chain. I will mention that first, since that is where we are very actively involved in these approaches in the Asia region. And so, you know, issues related to deforestation and social exploitation, we know are often not limited to a single supplier or sector. And we appreciate this opportunity to work together, businesses, governments, uh, suppliers and farmers to really achieve that lasting, meaningful change that we are looking for in, in Mike's terms, you know, that we are demanding. Um, and we don't see a single solution to address the challenge and landscape approaches. I think it's been mentioned before, give us that opportunity to work in a collaborative way to test and build solutions that are rooted in local needs, you know, in a, in a way that Cargill by ourselves may not have access to, right? We, we do need that support from, from other organizations, the pro-forest of the world, um, to, to really give us that access. So where, where I sit now, you know, you, you mentioned COCO is, is kind of looking at a current reality that you might see in that sector, which, which has, its, has its advantages to what's needed which is what I'm starting to see as I transition into the palm sector. So, you know, in a current reality, you might see islands of best practice, right? And those are very good practices typically. Um, and you see those production standards are improved, but you might also see that bad practices end up being pushed elsewhere. And you will see that companies that insist on higher environmental and social standards, you might see a, a bit of a commercial disadvantage because then you're operating at a cost level that others may not be. And you may see actually that some competition starts to develop around sustainability, even though we're all there together, you know, we're all working for the same things, right? And, and so it's really not an appropriate place that we, we should be competing. Um, and so what I see in the advantage of landscape approaches and, and where they're, you know, where industries are moving is really raising those legal minimum standards that that sector wide capacity building and driving sectoral transformation across entire regions. Um, and we've already talked about prioritizing those regions a bit. And it really does create a level playing field for companies who are looking to have those improved outcomes that we've been talking about throughout this session. 
so I can, I can pause there to, to give that compare contrast. Does that, does that help? Yeah, thank you. Very, very interesting. Um, I mean, lots to discuss here. I mean, some great questions coming in in the chat. Just wondered if any of the other panelists wanted to respond to either those points or, or any raised by Mike. Um, Dan, uh, anything you wanted to add from what you've heard so far before we move on? Um, no, I just saw a very interesting question in the chat. Uh, is it okay you respond to that? Yeah, sure. So I saw one question about uh, the role of communities in, in landscapes. And I think one uh, example that I wanted to share is from West Kalimantan in Indonesia, where we, uh, together with our partners, have been working with a community that actually, um, through this landscape approach, now has formal land rights. Um, and through that process has decided that out of the, say, 80,000 hectares that they now have formal land rights to, they will conserve most of it. Um, and then, of course, hope that it can be linked to uh, biodiversity payments, to carbon payments, what have you. Um, but with this commitment, we've been able to end the land rights, link them to investment yeah, so and formal uh, lines of finance to invest in new businesses that are away from the traditional clear cut, but much more about in balance with nature and linking that then to premium markets. Um, in Indonesia and beyond. So I think there are definitely these kind of cases emerging um, that really set the example of how a landscape uh, program can also be really centered around the community and its needs and built from there. And I think that's just a very powerful one that I wanted to share. Thank you. That reminds me of a point we discussed yesterday, which maybe I can put to you, Megan, um, with your smallholder experience. Um, I've heard various stories of... Um, when farmers see how their products are used and the impact they can have, it's an enormous motivation for them in a way that's not always considered. Um, we've all heard of chocolate companies taking chocolate bars out to farmers in Ghana. I've been with a chocolate company doing that and none of the farmers wanted to eat the chocolate because it was all too sweet, uh, which is quite amusing. <laughs> uh, but when, when they see enjoyment of product, it can make a huge impact. And I wondered, are we missing a trick when it comes to, to smallholders in say cocoa and palm in your experience? Because if they understood more, if we focus more on helping farmers understood the contribution they can make, not just to their village, but their community, to their landscape, to their jurisdiction, to their state, and even their country, uh, without wanting to sound too grandiose about it, um, that could be an, a, actually a huge motivator for them to take interest in conservation. And it's not something we, we talk about enough, and I don't think we've talked about it enough, the things we've done. Uh, we talk much more about financial incentives and technical incentives, but actually, there are, oh, have we missed a trick there, Megan, I suppose is my question. I wouldn't say that we've necessarily missed a trick. I would say it's all about balance. Um, that yes, I think everybody has intrinsic motivators that they want to be part of something bigger. You know, they they want to see the big picture of what are they involved in and what are they working in. And it is really important to tie the work that we do to not only, you know, the sustainability that we think of it in terms of a company perspective, but into protecting their own livelihoods, right? And their own their own land in which they take a lot of pride in, right? And so it, it is important to connect those messages and make sure that farmers understand that bigger picture that you're a part of. And usually it is, it can be difficult, right? Isolation is a bit of an issue, of course. Um, 
so we, you want to think of it not as messaging just one direction. You know, you, you think so often of, of messaging up and out. Um, but I think an important thing is to consider farmers, at least from the perspective where I sit, as customers as well, right? They are your partners and they are business people and we can't get anywhere without them. So you do need to message correctly down as well. You know, I say down as in down the supply chain, right? To make sure that they are with us on the journey. We're all in the same journey together and there's something in it for everybody. But farmers are business people as well. And let's keep that in mind, right? And extrinsic motivation is important as well. And it's something that I do see, you know, through landscape approaches is under, you know, it's an opportunity to understand better what are those extrinsic motivators, right? They might not necessarily be, you know, financial, hard financial incentives. It might be market access, right? Which is something that, that Cargill provides. It might be just access to knowledge, or finance. So you don't necessarily want to go in assuming that you know what those motivators are for, for smallholder farmers. And it's it's really interesting under these landscape approaches that there is such an opportunity to hear that, that that bottom up, you know, that that voice that says what is needed in that particular landscape. Thank you. Uh, Mariana, I saw you nodding on along there. Tell us about the Brazil experience. Uh, are we getting better at making farmers proud in Brazil of, of work they've done and then using that to deliver further impact in, in landscapes? So, uh, taking one point that Megan already mentioned, uh, it's important to emphasize that low carbon technology and the integrated landscape approach in Brazil increased the farmers' profitability. So this is a key message, especially for smallholders, for example. Uh, in Brazil, we have more than 5 million families that work in agriculture and livestock. So th this is the key point, increase profitability. And this is a key strategic for the ABC and many other public policies that we have. Uh, in ABC, for example, we have the agriculture policy, we have the rural credit for farmers. And what we realize, regions where we, we give the correct incentives for farmers, they adopt the technology. So we, we, we did a research with the uh, Federal University of Goiás, where we, we have the geo information about where uh, the technology are increasing fastly. And what we realized where, where we, we provide technical assistance, Megan already talked about knowledge management and information uh, together with credit, green finance is essential. So when farmers, they have the correct incentives, they adopt this technology. Uh, I also saw in the chat what uh, Rachel asked about uh, deforestation. And my, my key message, Rachel, is that we include to Brazil to achieve the NC that we assume in COP26. We, we need, we must to control deforestation at a national level because farmers in Brazil, they, they are one of the, they, are, they have the big loss uh, in their image, in their business for a situation that are working and are, are, are happening for illegal, for criminals, that it's the police case. So this is one point, Rachel, and then I, I'm available for you for a deep conversation later about that. Thank you. I, I want to ask you all in a minute about uh, an interesting theme in the chat around um, 
risk being applied to countries rather than regions or jurisdictions and what that could mean and and whether or not there's going to need to be a bit of a concerted effort to to perhaps nuance uh, regulatory and, and import-based approaches based on regions and jurisdictions. Before I do that, though, we did have that earlier question about can GMOs sit in the sustainable landscape? Um, Mariana, it was mentioned around soy, so just your views on that. Um, GMOs often comes up. It's something we, we can't ignore because many large sourcing companies or consumer goods companies have a non-GMO policy. So in your mind, do, do GMOs sit in a sustainable landscape? Is that all okay? Yes, I think that we also need to think about science-based information, Toby. And I forwarded in the chat a link that we have uh, three books that they are, they are very clean, clean in a way that in this book, there is 10,000 of scientific papers resume in two pages for each scientific paper. And that's papers uh, in, in these documents, we have information about GMO and the conventional uh, system for carbon sequestration. But I think the big point is we must think about the landscape and the production systems, not isolate technology. So for example, here in Brazil, we talk about the no-chill system. So it's not only about to produce soy, but it's in a production systems where I have uh, no-chill systems, I use bioinputs, I use technology, and I use science-based. So because that I, I send the, this, this link, that I have information that we talked earlier about it, in different biomes, the results, the, the factors, and very important to Brazil and all tropical countries, uh, uh, relates with our reality. The tropical agriculture is different from, for example, uh, many areas in Europe. So I think in this disinformation, there is a, a whole science-based uh, reference about that. Thanks. I don't want to spend too long on the GMO questions. Lots more to talk about. Any of the other speakers want to say anything about it, just wave at me and I'll come to you. But if I don't see you react, we'll move on. Um, before we before we look at the uh, the question I raised earlier, there was a follow-up question for you, Mike, which I thought was quite interesting. Forgive me if you feel you've already addressed this, but Ling Zhu was asking, in addition to the attribution question, how do you prioritise interventions which result in the most positive impact on nature? So, Mike, maybe you could take that on and Dan, if, see, let's see if you have a comment on that afterwards, Mike. Yes, I mean, we, uh, I should say that the, the, the projects that we work with, we are not the, the project managers and, and we work with project partners and project developers who actually in most uh, cases are local communities. So most of the projects that, that we're looking at are actually community uh, forest areas. Um, which also I, I think um, would, would go to some way of, of answering Dean's question. Um, there are many successes. Uh, Dan has already also mentioned this in terms of you know, how these things can kind of work together with indigenous communities. Um, so what we do is we look at the, the long-term management plan of the projects. Uh, we do due diligence uh, on that project to make sure that um, that the project fulfills um, criteria related to financial, legal, uh, regulatory, and technical aspects. Within technical aspects, we're looking at, of course, social um, uh, social um, agreement. Uh, communities um, agree to the project being there, agree to the the, the 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 kind of the focus of the management activities um, that are being presented. 
And so the, the priorities within the projects that, that, we, that we support um, are really determined very at the local level um, by either the communities um, or the project proponents together with the, the communities. And so they might be related um, to forest conservation, peatland protection, uh, restoration, um, biodiversity protection, and so on. There are also livelihood components um, in, in there as well. Um, so, so we ourselves do not determine uh, the, the priorities. They are determined by the project proponents and the people who know the area the best, and they know what is, um, what is supposed to be there. What we do is we support the project in ensuring that those are the right activities and that they're going to be successful over the, over the long term, because we are looking at this 25-year um, horizon. So you know, we, we need to ensure permanence, right? Um, that's, that's really um, key. Um, one thing that um, I, I think would, is, is quite interesting, I think, is, is, is this livelihood um, component. You know, what we're um, seeing is that there, is, there are kind of capacity gaps, I think, um, both in terms of project development, uh, both in terms of capacity of project developers to start, you know, increasing the project supply, as I keep referring to it, um, somewhat dryly, um, when we're talking about quite exciting projects. Um, but uh, also, you know, in terms of looking at the incentives for the local communities, um, you know, to really start thinking about conservation, not as something that, uh, you know, for example, the, that, you know, if they are producing in the local area and there is a forest next to the, you know, local communities have always been, okay, well, we will support you on the production side, but you have to protect the forest. And that doesn't necessarily create the, the, the right narrative um, around this because people are always looking at that forest as an opportunity cost. And so what we need to make sure is that, that the forest protection creates its own income uh, to, the, to the communities, which creates a diversification of livelihoods um, and that they also see a benefit from that forest protection, not as an opportunity cost, but actually as, a, as, a, as an income. So I think those are really kind of key things in this production protection inclusion uh, projects um, that, that also, you know, we, we're really keen to support in order to make them successful is that livelihood component is, is really, um, really key. Sorry, so it sort of went a little bit off topic on that, but, um, but I thought it was important to mention that. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Uh, Dan, any comments on this point? Yeah, thanks. And I think, on, well, I, I fully agree with Mike that, that the priorities are really set by the coalitions because they know what to do. And just building on that point in the chat, so the, the landscape coalitions address more than agri-commodities and forest protection, right? They look really at the wider development of the landscape. Um, again, it's, it's based on, on the priorities within that landscape. And I think that is, that is really important. But then in terms of how do you leverage that, that for nature, I think it is important to, to realize that there is a trade-off, right? Between say living incomes and living forest. Um, and that we really have to work on that nexus, right? So how do we really make that work? That if we grow the income of workers, of smallholder farmers, of others in the landscape, that there's no indeed an additional incentive to cut even more because you know the income you get from a plot of land has just increased. Um, and that's, I think, where, where we need to work together on. And, and Companies also get this, right? So also just get that out in terms of that systems transformation, 
Um, just going to the Mau forest in Kenya as an example, where actually the tea sector uh, that has large estates and also smallholder farmers in the same belt next to the Mau forest, they really depend on the rainfall generated by the Mau forest for their future crops. Um, the incursion on that forest actually happens on the far end of the forest, um, where communities are not linked to the tea supply chain, um, have less uh, access to markets and, and, and capital. So in order to protect that forest, that coalition has actually moved to that far end of the forest, sit down with the community and see what are the needs, how can we work on the income component? So you don't, we do, and all of us don't have to cut down that forest, but it can actually work on the restoration thereof. And that is now really starting to work. So deforestation has gone down, restoration has gone up. And at the same time, the communities are now linked to more access to capital, more access to, uh, to markets. Um, so I think it, it, it's really in that setting and also stepping outside of your comfort zone, right? I mean, the, these, these tea estates, for example, that work miles and miles away from their, their farm gates. Um, but that really is what it, what it requires, right? We have to get rid of this, you know, okay, so, you know, the public good is all for governments and, and, and the production end is all, for example, for companies. If we stick in that paradigm, we'll be stuck uh, where we are now. We have to get out of that comfort zone and start allowing each other to move into this shared space. I think that's really where we can then make that link between the social, the economic and the environmental. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And I think that links to James Streeter's question, which you mentioned briefly, Dan. But just to build on that a bit more, do you, do you see any activity in any of the landscapes you observe where there are, you know, mining other heavy industry companies involved. We've had ICMM come and talk about the potential of that, the International Council on Mining and Metals. And it's clear that if we're talking about sustainable rural development, you're going to need to involve the other actors. And many of us have heard the stories of different ministries handing out different permits to different industries in the same part of land. Um, and a mining company turns up and there's a palm oil plantation there, then they have a fight over who gets the land. So clearly, Involving other industries is vital. Is there any meaningful progress there? And are there any examples any of you can cite where that's happening? Maybe I'll start with you, Dan. Um, well, I think, you know, in nature, it's a multi-stakeholder approach. Uh, and maybe just on this idea of, of mining and palm oil. Indeed, in West Kalimantan, we had such a case. Um, and there we actually designed something, uh, what is called key ecosystem area approach in Indonesia, supported by the government, which also outlays, you know, you know, which forest to protect or to restore, et cetera, et cetera. So when there was this fight happening or fight, there was a conflict, a misunderstanding of, of you know, how to use that land, then this whole key ecosystem approach really helped to say, okay, no, this has been identified, no matter who owns it or what kind of use, we'll use it for nature. Um, so I think there are now these kind of tools becoming available. Okay, thanks. I'm going to ask the rest of the panel to comment briefly on this. Uh, Mariana, do you have any comments you would make about other industries being involved in areas that you've observed in Brazil? Uh, Toby, I totally agree with them. There's a mood stakeholder. We have many examples here in Brazil where the supply chain are improved and bring you uh, velocity, accelerate the process of adoption of technology for farmers. So I, uh, and back to COP26, I think that all this process 
to promote a more uh, transition for a more sustainable agriculture, not only in Brazil, but in the world. It's a process of cooperation and collaboration. As uh, nowadays working the government, for sure, we, we need this together. For example, here in Brazil, not to, uh, last year, we increased in 100% the credit to the finance for farmers for this technology. And, and this credit also supports farmers to recover this, for example, farmers that uh, have some problems with this area that I mentioned for forest code for native vegetation finance the recovery of this area uh, and all the, the ABC technologies and in the or Copeland Safra the agriculture policy uh, the, the duration is 12 months in six months even if we we increase in 100% the money finish so so this mood stakeholder is important farmers are are they they are trying to move on so the government are doing his job but for sure as dan mentioned all this paternity this was the spirit of cop 26 collaboration cooperation and i think that we must go this mood stakeholder together because it will be essential for uh produce food Food security and also for uh, reduce and control the temperature and bring a resilience to climate change. Thank you. Uh, Mike, care to comment in 30 seconds or less? Uh, maybe even less. Um, I mean, I, I certainly collective action is, is, is fundamental uh, towards making this, this happen. I do think that there are now, uh, you know, uh, up and coming commitments such as in setting the science based targets. You know, when we're looking at within supply-based areas um, for your uh, for your kind of action, and you know, most of these areas um, will overlap. And so, I think this kind of cross-commodity collaboration, uh, where you're looking at intervention in areas where the where, where the provides a huge opportunity that still is there to explore. I think it's with current commitments that need to be fulfilled. Okay, thank you. We lost you briefly, but I think we got most of that. Um, we have to finish up now, but there was a really important raised question raised in the chat, which I'm going to assume your answer <laughs> is all going to be the same to, but if you disagree, let me know. Um, the, the, the point was that um, if we're going to start if we're looking at some of the proposed legislation, there's, there's proposals that sourcing areas will be defined by country risk rather than by regional or landscape risk. And I'm going to assume you all agree with the idea that it should be about... Um, defining risk on the basis of regions and landscapes rather than by country. Uh, and I suppose the onus, if, we, if you all agree with that, and I assumed you all would, um, the onus then is on all of us here attending and speaking to make that point so that we don't end up with the kind of rules where Brazil gets written out. Well, I don't think that's possible anyway, given the enormous contribution Brazil makes to global agricultural supply chains. Therefore, the onus is going to be on all of us to encourage policymakers, I think, to take a much more nuanced approach to understanding where a good jurisdiction is and where one is that needs to be improved. So I'm not seeing any dissent from the panel on that point. So um, I assume that's a good place to conclude. Thank you all for your contributions. It's been a fascinating and complex discussion. I'm going to go and have to watch this again so I can try and remember half of it. There was so much to unpack. Uh, and I think we made a very useful contribution to the conference agenda. So thank you all for your time, commitment and support. And we will see everyone in the next session. Thank you. <laughs>